It has no taste. It has no color. Little to no outward symptoms. Easy to acquire and, unless prompted, not easy to detect. But administered in the right way, in the right dosages, it promises a lethal outcome. Arsenic. It's been around for centuries and used in a variety of ways. It's been used in the beauty industry for that lily white skin. Its powerful metallic essence was used to help treat venereal disease and parasite infection. It was put into tonics to combat ailments of all kinds. But when used as a poison, it can kill fast or it can kill slow. But no matter how long it takes for death to rescue the victim, it is a most brutal and unforgiving way to perish, and it has long been known to be a death sentence drug of choice. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. The term Angel of Mercy has been used to describe a type of serial killer, usually female, who intentionally harms a person with the intent of receiving praise for healing them, or kills them, contending that it was in their best interest, or just better for them. The Angel of Mercy complex can extend into controlling when they feel they should end someone's perceived suffering, and eventually grow into imagined illnesses projected onto others that they then need to attend to. She was known as the Good Samaritan, a quiet, gentlewoman that lived a responsible life on a farm about 50 miles from the heart of St. Louis, Missouri. She was described as a heavyset woman, and also, quote, a sort of a good-looking woman, with dark brown hair and a dark complexion. Not very tall. She had sort of a lisp, end quote. In 1928, when she was arrested, the facade she created came crashing down as victim after victim came to light in a string of murders. 53-year-old Bertha Gifford was a serial killer. Bertha was born in 1876 near the town of Hillsboro, Missouri. She was one of eight children, and the family considered her one of the area's, quote, finest and most respectable, end quote. Bertha married Henry Graham in December of 1894. It's said that they both tended a farm and ran a hotel. But not long into the marriage, both were having affairs. Bertha's new mate was Eugene Gifford. He was seven years younger than she and when daughter Lila was born, it was unclear who the father was. The marriage became quite a scandal, and everyone had privy to their arguments. Despite their differences, in 1906, when Graham came down with pneumonia, Bertha stayed by his side until the disease overtook him, and he died at the age of 34. Bertha claimed the insurance, and after a respectable time, Bertha and Jean married in 1907, and left the town of Morse Mill to start fresh. They chose the area of Catawissa to settle because Jean had family nearby, so they rented a farm. The Giffords added son James Albert to their family in March of 1914. They were a happy family and settling nicely into the small town. Jean raised hogs, cattle, and grew corn, and was well-liked in the community and known for his congenial personality. Bertha became known in the town as something of a country nurse. The residents all said that she was a good neighbor, kind, helpful, always willing to help out. One went so far as to say, quote, she'd sometimes walk or ride miles to be at the sickbed or at the scene of an accident, end quote. She was always known to have her potions with her wherever she traveled. She concocted her own cure-alls to help her ailing neighbors when the local doctor couldn't arrive soon enough. The Stolfelders were the closest neighbors with the Giffords. So in 1915, 15-month-old Bernard Stolfelder started feeling ill and the doctor couldn't be found. They turned to their neighbor who quickly came to their aid. 
The child was obviously feeling poorly, so Bertha rolled up her sleeves and took over the room. She told the concerned parents that she would tend to him until the doctor could be summoned. They left the child in her care, but unfortunately, the boy died from bronchial pneumonia. Sadly, it wasn't the first death poor Bertha had to deal with in her own home. When her mother-in-law, Emily, came to stay with her and Jean in 1912, the poor older woman must have already been terribly ill because it wasn't long before organic heart trouble took her life, so said the doctor. Jean's younger brother, Jimmy, took ill only 16 months later and died of whooping cough. Such a sad event. Jean had lost the last of his immediate family. All he had now was his beloved Bertha. Bertha regularly entertained the work hands that helped her husband run the farm or for the holidays and funerals. She attended every funeral and insisted on preparing food for the grieving families. Her door was always open. A gentleman would tell a reporter, quote, She was a wonderful cook, I'll say that, one of the best biscuit makers in the county, end quote. In 1917, when Sherman Pounds, widowed father of five, town drunk, showed up at her door, it was not suspicious at all, not even when he took his last breath. When the town's doctor was called, he signed the death certificate that the cause of death was drinking, and technically, I guess it was. In 1921, almost to the day of young Bernard's death, our 15-month-old, if you'll recall, his two-year-old sister, Margaret Stolfelder, came down with pneumonia. Eventually, during the trial, Mrs. Stolfelder would say, quote, We called Dr. Helmker and he prescribed for her. Mrs. Gifford, as usual, came over to nurse the sick baby. She told me the baby looks as if she's awfully sick. I don't think she'll get well. At the end of the second day, Margaret began to vomit, and after another three days, she died. End quote. 1923 the Bend News reported on March 16th, quote, Catawissa School was dismissed Monday for the funeral of seven-year-old Irene Stolfelder, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. George Stolfelder, who died Saturday night and was buried in Rock Church Cemetery Monday. Many Bend folks attended the funeral of little Irene, end quote. In her testimony, Mrs. Stolfelder said, quote, Irene had always been troubled with worms and when she got sick in 1923, we called Dr. Hemker. He prescribed some stomach powder, and she seemed to be getting along very well when Mrs. Gifford came by. Mrs. Gifford nursed her, and she started to vomit. She was sick nine days when she died. End quote. That's three children. Three Stuffelder children. Quote, We did not think there was anything strange about the death of our children. Everybody in this part of the country knows that Mrs. Gifford has a wide reputation as a nurse. End quote. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. In the small town of Catawissa, there was only one doctor, and he couldn't be everywhere at once. It was difficult to find him at times, and even if he could come to help, he couldn't stay to nurse the patient to health again. Real nurses were a luxury that the folks of Catawissa couldn't afford, so they were grateful for a woman such as Bertha who wasn't afraid to step in and help. She would even stay and cradle the sick patient through the most difficult of times. Quote, she always wore a white apron when she'd come to call. Later on, I think she started to wear a regular nurse's outfit. She was always meticulously clean. She could be so friendly and warm. End quote. Most country people back then accepted help. Quote, you have to understand, in rural area like this, people took death as a way of life, end quote. Jim Ogle was a hired hand to the Giffords. He was bad-mouthing them all over town, saying that they shortchanged him about $200. He talked to everyone who would listen that he was going to get his money even if he had to sue them. He earned that money, and he wasn't leaving without it. 
Even in November of 1917, when Jim Ogle contracted malaria, that's right, Doc Hemker diagnosed the man with malaria, Bertha turned a blind eye to the man's harsh, abrasive behavior and snarky remarks and took over the nursing duties. On November 17th, Jimmy Powers, the druggist in Pacific, jotted in his poison notebook that Mrs. Jean Gifford purchased arsenic to take care of the rats that were attacking her prized chickens. And by November 18th, curiously, Jim Ogle took a turn for the worse. The doctor was called back and noted the severe stomach cramps and documented gastritis as the cause of death. 1922 Beulah Pounds, age 3, dies on the 26th of December. Beulah was staying with Bertha while her mother ran some errands. When she came back to pick the child up that evening, little Beulah complained about a stomach ache. Bertha did her best to explain how to care for the child and what to give her and when, but her mother opted to leave the child with the county's nurse for the night. Poor Beulah became worse and the doctor was summoned immediately. She died only moments after the doctor arrived. Gastritis was marked on the death certificate. Coincidentally, Beulah Pounds is the granddaughter of Sherman Pounds, who also perished of stomach pains in the Gifford home. Pause. In case you've lost count, we're at eight. The child's aunt didn't trust the results and wanted a post-mortem done to check for the cause of Beulah's death. But Beulah's mother said, quote, I asked about holding a post-mortem, but people said it would cost me a lot of money. I didn't know the state held the post-mortems. We just buried the child after the doctor treated her, end quote. When she asked Bertha about the post-mortem, she also said, quote, Mrs. Gifford was usually a quiet woman, but she certainly got mad. She said terrible things, end quote. Bertha was so insulted at even questioning the need for an autopsy. The funeral of little Beulah was to be the first and only funeral she didn't attend for the length of her residence in Catawissa. Bertha also had a habit of stealing. The Giffords were not poor or in want of anything. She just stole just to do it. Her husband, Jean, was aware and told the local general store owner, Ben Sheeve, who also happened to be the undertaker, to be sure to have a look around the store after his wife came through, and if anything was missing, he would pay for it. He let her think she was getting away with petty crimes. The women in the town would also remember her other curiosity. She was fascinated with death. She loved to gossip about the latest murder or accidents she read about in the newspapers. Her peccadillos were not enough to cast doubt on her good nature, though, nor raise suspicion. Death was unpredictable. A local woman told a reporter, quote, Everybody knew her. She wasn't a stranger. She smiled and helped out when they needed help. They saw her all the time. Some of them may have had suspicions now and then. I don't doubt it. But to really believe that she was a murderer meant tearing off that smiling mask and looking into the face of a monster. It's a terrifying thing. The truth is that there wasn't real suspicion for the longest time, not until the Shamo boys died. End quote. The Shamo boys. This brings us to 1925, and, by the way, it was more than just the boys. Almost the entire family perished. The mother... Ethel Shamel dies first at the age of 33. She had been ill for some time, weak and frail. But the two sons, Lloyd and Elmer, participated in most of the school sports activities. And yet, Lloyd, their nine-year-old son, dies two months later, and Elmer, the seven-year-old, dies a month after that. And finally, Aunt Leona, three weeks later, dies on October 12th at the age of 37. George, the father, in the midst of his grief, had not suspected foul play. He'd known the Giffords for sixteen years, and it was the normal thing to do to call Mrs. Gifford when illness comes to the home. In 1928, he shared this statement with the reporter, quote, Mrs. Gifford sent for me, and I got to the house on Saturday night with my two boys. The next night, it was Sunday. Lloyd was sick with a stomach ache, 
Tuesday night, he was dead. A little more than a month went by, and the same thing happened to my other boy. I thought it was just bad luck at the time. End quote. The good Dr. Hemker signed all the death certificates. The final death, Ed Brinley. Ed Brinley was a drunk who showed up at the Giffords looking for work as a hired hand after losing his butcher's shop because of his nasty drinking habit. The story goes that on the evening of May 15, 1927, Brinley was drunk and collapsed on the road. Gene Gifford helped him inside and put him to bed. By the next afternoon, he was dead. Bertha told a neighbor that it was probably a good thing that Brinley died, quote, his mother won't have to worry about him anymore, end quote. Dr. Hemker was called to sign the death certificate, per usual, but finally, even he was wary. He decided to call in another physician. They argued, and the death certificate was documented as being, quote, acute unknown disease and acute gastritis cause unknown. Yeah, big changes there. It had gone on long enough. The curious amounts of death whispered their way to the county seat in Union, Missouri, where a prosecuting attorney by the name of Frank Jenny launched an investigation with full backing from the Franklin County Grand Jury. Bertha was furious and threatened to sue every single person for libel who dared to speak out against her. Even her husband, who was usually patient and calm, Jean railed against neighbors and friends for even thinking of his wife in such a way. One neighbor commented, quote, Jean was a real nice fellow, as honest as the day is long. He was a good man. He was jolly and everyone liked him, end quote. And so, for the time, it kept the small town quiet. A little backstory to help the perspective of how the prosecutor, Frank Jenny, was able to bypass the witnesses that were holding him back from further investigation. In Pacific, Missouri, the next largest town where people from Catawissa did most of their shopping, a druggist named James Powers was required to keep a poison log. It was just a small book with lined pages, and he noted every time someone came in to purchase poison. Frank Jenny asked about any recent purchases of arsenic, and he was reminded of a minor problem on the bend. One of his many regular customers often complained to him that Rats were bothering her chickens. She was proud of her Rhode Island Reds, she would say, and was going to do something about it. In the poison record ledger kept by Powers Pharmacy, there appeared a number of entries for the sale of large quantities of arsenic to Bertha Gifford. The first entry was made in 1917. At another Pacific pharmacy, Bertha purchased arsenic as early as 1911. Four rats, she wrote next to her signature. So when Frank Jenny took the ledgers from the Pacific pharmacies, suddenly everyone had a story to tell. August 23, 1928, an indictment against Bertha Gifford was filed for two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Edward P. Brinley and young Elmer Shamel. Once the story broke, the prosecutor's office was flooded with letters and calls about family members who died while under the care of Bertha Gifford. The Giffords moved to Eureka, Missouri when the investigation exploded. It wasn't long before Bertha Gifford was taken into custody on August 25th. Bertha eventually signed a confession. The confession stated, quote, I, Bertha Gifford, wife of E.B. Gifford, now living near Eureka, Missouri, hereby state of my own free will, without threat or promise of immunity, that my husband and I live on the Nicholson Place near Catawissa about August 8, 1925, when George Shamel brought his son Lloyd, eight or nine years old, and his son Elmer John, about seven, to our house where he and they made their home with us. Lloyd was sick at the time. Dr. Hemker waited on him and left some medicine for him. I put some arsenic in the medicine before I gave it to him, and Lloyd died on or about August 11, 1925. About May 15, 1927, Bertha's statement continues, Edward Brinley, about 48 years old, drove up to our house in an old Ford. He was drunk. 
He came in, sat down for a while, then got up and went out and fell down on the concrete walk. My husband went out and brought him in, and I fixed the bed for him. I called Dr. Hemker. He left some medicine for him, and I put arsenic in the medicine. In all three cases, the patients were suffering from severe pains in the stomach, and I put arsenic in their medicine to quiet their pains. End quote. I did it to ease their pains, she would say again. When Mrs. Gifford was moved to the Union Jail, she discovered that her confession had been released to the public, and she lost it. She denied ever saying anything and began moaning and pacing her jail cell. Jean hired a lawyer, and they entered the plea of not guilty. He stood by her, telling the press, quote, She was just nervous when she said those things. They excited her, and she made those statements. She didn't know what she was saying, end quote. The bodies of Brindley and the Shamel brothers were exhumed and large quantities of arsenic were found in their vital organs. The trial lasted only four days. The prosecutor would seek the death penalty. But by the time the defense lawyer had his say, and following the steady stream of carefully planned witnesses, the ringer being her husband, Jean, he would tell the jury that his wife would suffer from attacks of melancholy and that sometimes walked the floor two or three nights in a row and would often sit for hours and not say a word. Neighbors would come forward and corroborate the character analysis. Doctors and psychiatrists would all state that Bertha was incurably insane. The prosecutor opted not to refute the theory and allowed it to stand gently directing the jury that they may find the defendant insane instead, but do not set her free. In three hours, the jury agreed that Bertha Gifford had killed Ed Brinley, but had been insane at the time and was still insane. She was committed to State Hospital Number 4 in Farmington for life. And there she stayed for 23 years until her death on August 20, 1951. Her husband arranged for a small funeral and then a burial at Morse Mill Cemetery. Her grave is unmarked. A friend quotes, Even after everything happened, the trial and all, Jean never mentioned it. He never said a word against her or against anybody. End quote. And the good Dr. Hemker? He was railed against by the state health commissioners in a statement about the doctor's actions. He says, quote, it's a physician's duty to determine the cause of death before filing a death certificate. It is his duty to the community in which he practices and to himself, end quote. Some in the community thought he was a drunk and a coke addict and somewhat incompetent. Whatever his issues, they believed he should have come forward years earlier. Dr. Hemker died of heart failure in 1946. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt. But do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. Merriam-Webster gives the word bluebeard the definition of, quote, a man who marries and kills one wife after another, end quote, and the verb Bluebearding has even appeared as a way to describe the crime of either killing a series of women or seducing and abandoning a series of women. This story is of a serial killer that the press and even the police department referred to as Mrs. Bluebeard. The story of Roberta Elder's brush with celebrity begins at the death of her husband, Reverend Mr. William M. Elder, August 21, 1952. In Atlanta, Georgia, the Baptist church minister worked as a carpenter during the week. He had complained of stomach pains when he came home from work on that hot afternoon. Roberta, his wife of little more than a year, dutifully gave him a dose of milk of magnesia and sent him off to bed. She called the family physician. After his consultation, he gave Mrs. Elder some medicine instructing her to call him if he failed to show improvement. He would tell the police and later the jury, that Mrs. Elder did not contact him again until her husband was dying. It was at this second visit that he noticed the, quote, preacher's skin had slipped 
and there were peculiar skin discolorations and sores on his body, end quote. His body was emaciated from hours and hours of vomiting. The physician refused to sign the death certificate. Upon later reflection, the doctor had realized that he signed a death certificate for this family only one year ago, the elder's daughter, Fannie Mae. Her death was listed as pneumonia. And as he dug a little deeper, he saw another death certificate for another member of the elder's family, Annie Pearl Elder. Another daughter had passed away less than a year before that. Cause of death? Pneumonia. He notified the coroner that he wanted a post-mortem examination and suggested they search for arsenic. He noticed the resemblance of the presentation of arsenic could be confused with pneumonia, if not looking for foul play. The tests would come back to show that two and seven-tenths grains of arsenic were found in the body of Reverend Mr. Elder, which, as it turns out, to be enough to kill three grown men. The doctor, whom I could not find a name for, called the police to share what he discovered. He suggested an investigation of the wife and mentioned her calm demeanor, her, quote, careful talking, and that she seemed to be, quote, emotionless woman, end quote. In the meantime, the bodies of Annie Pearl Elder and Fannie Mae Elder, stepdaughters of Roberta's, were exhumed. A coroner's physician and licensed toxicologist reported 1.2 milligrams of pure arsenic were found in the hair and skin tissues of the two children. Mrs. Roberta Elder was arrested in connection with the death of her husband and two stepchildren on September 26, 1952. Detective J. E. Helms led the investigation. He gathered a team and they went back as far as 1938 looking for people who have died in Robert Elder's circle. They came up with a list of 13 suspicious deaths surrounding their prime suspect. The first death they came up with is John Woodward, who was 36 at the time of his death in 1938. He was considered her common-law husband and when they discovered that he died of unnatural causes, they knew they were on to something. I couldn't find any record of her first husband, but his children, Willie, who was her stepson, was 12 when he died. Their son, James, was 13 when he died. I'm not sure how that happened, but the records are not very clear with the dynamic of the family, but both boys died in 1939. Willie May a daughter, was only two weeks old, and Lizzie May, who died at only one week old, and I don't have the dates for their deaths. In 1943, there are records of two more deaths in the family. One is her one-year-old son, James Garfield Crane, Jr., and her grandchild, Jimmy Lee Crane Hunter, who was listed as being two years old at the time of death. Her cousin Gloria Evans and her mother, Mrs. Kelly Brown, were listed as visiting Roberta at her home while she was married to James Crane. Gloria's death happened in December of 1944, and her mother passed away in 1945. And then I guess she was done with that marriage because in 1947, James Garfield Crane died at 45 years old from food poisoning. I'm sorry that I don't have any stories surrounding these peculiar deaths. I have no idea what was going on in Roberta's life at the time. As I mentioned, the records are sparse, and then when she was brought in for questioning, she was pretty tight-lipped and refused to confess to anything, but preferred to remain quiet and calm. But with or without the story around it, this next person on her list pretty much speaks for itself. This next suspicious death is that of her husband's former wife. It says that she died of influenza in 1950. It wasn't long after her death that William Elder and Roberta were married. Starting at the top of the next year, which turned out to be very busy for Mrs. Bluebeard, the two elder stepdaughters Fannie Mae and Annie Pearl dies. She closes out the year with the death of her 94-year-old friend, Nora Scott Harris. Not sure how they deemed this a suspicious death. At 94, she probably didn't need much help. But 
that brings us up to December of 1951. She did have insurance policies on all of the victims, including all of the elder children, naming her as the sole beneficiary. I believe there were still two or maybe three elder stepchildren left that were older because they testified against her during the trial. The state decided to only indict Mrs. Elder for the single murder of Reverend Elder instead of including his two daughters. The prosecution was aware that the evidence being presented in the courtroom was all circumstantial, not having found a supply of arsenic on the property or a link to a purchase of it, but they felt that the string of victims in her wake and the evidence of massive amounts of arsenic in Reverend Elder's body would be enough. They had hoped for a death by electrocution, but would be satisfied with life in prison. They were wanting to show her character, and the court admitted testimony from those she worked with. She happened to work at the office of a church, and the depositions taken by police stated that Mrs. Elder had, quote, misplaced a fairly large sum of money as treasurer, end quote. Again, circumstantial, but they were building evidence for their case. The Georgia Courier article reads, quote, Roberta Elder was cool as a cucumber, end quote, when Atlanta police told her that she would have to attend an inquest seeking the cause of death of her husband. When asked three times if she had ever bought any kind of poison, including arsenic, the accused claimed, quote, no, I would not know what it looks like, end quote. During the questioning, the only sign of annoyance showed up after repeating the same questions time and time again. When they asked what she was doing the night Mr. Elder passed away, she responded with a huff, quote, caring for my sick man, end quote. And she was quite positive that she did not place any, quote, any of that pink stuff, end quote, into the bottle of milk of magnesia. When asked if she had given Reverend Mr. Elder's daughter any pearl proper care, she replied, quote, at all times, end quote. Willie Elder, Jr., 20-year-old son of the late minister, told the court that Mrs. Elder had administered medicine to each of the three people who died, and added that he stopped eating at the house after his father's death. When asked why, he replied, quote, I thought if she poisoned them, she might try to get me too, end quote. He testified that he had also gotten sick twice at the breakfast table after eating. After keeping Roberta Elder in custody for nine months during the investigation, the Fulton County Grand Jury found her guilty and sentenced her to life imprisonment. She never confessed. She was, quote, just as cool when the state finally got a life-term sentence against her nearly two years later. With as much indifference as a cornered possum, Mrs. Elder merely shrugged her shoulders when deputies escorted her from the, the courtroom, end quote. The last information that I could find on Mrs. Roberta Elder, a quiet woman that kept her secrets hidden for over 14 years, was that she was a model inmate. I could find no records of her death or that she was ever released from prison. Her life had been deleted, much like the lives she took of her innocent victims, some for as little as a $25 life insurance policy. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. 
So I've created a group in Facebook and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. The Black Widow in nature is a spider who is known for luring her mate to his death once she has acquired him. In the serial killer world, this term is often applied to women who marry multiple times for the sake of insurance payoffs, or because they have nothing better to do. October 14, 1956 At my death, whether it be a natural death or otherwise, I want my body to be given to some scientific institution to be used how they see fit, but especially to see if someone can find out why I committed the crimes I have committed. I can't understand it, for I had no reason whatsoever. There is definitely something wrong. Can't someone find it and save someone else the agony I have been through? End quote. It was 1957 in Montgomery, Alabama, that Rhonda Bell Martin was sentenced to death by electric chair for the crime of murder. She confessed to everything. Last year when she was arrested, she gave a handwritten 11-page report to the police coming clean of her crimes. This is the culmination of her almost 50 years on earth. She waits, patiently, reading her romance novel. A copy of the New Testament rests beside her in which the note was tucked. She has been given permission to take it with her when the time comes. Her life begins in 1907 as Rhonda Bell Thromley. There are not very many records of her youth, but records do show that she was married at 15 in 1922 to W.R. Alderman. The marriage lasted four years. She marries again in 1928 to George Garrett. This marriage lasts 12 years and produces five girls. The first daughter was Mary Adelaide. She was born in 1930, but only lived to be three years old. Next came Ellen Elizabeth in 1932, Anna Carolyn in 1933, Emma Jean was born in 1934, and little Judith in 1938. Now if I could just stop here, what a happy family this would be. But that is not the case for the Garrett family. At least, that's not what Rhonda Bell has in mind. While she claims that she did not take the life of her firstborn, she does admit that in 1937 she slips arsenic in the milk that Emmajine drinks and the child dies within days. She then turns the poison to her husband. She adds the tasteless arsenic to his bottle of whiskey and waits for it to do the work. In 1939, Judith Charlene dies and Rhonda insists that it was from natural causes. Anna Carolyn, however, is poisoned through a single glass of milk less than a year later. Ellen, her last surviving child, is poisoned. She is 11 years old. I can't help but wonder if she knew that eventually it would be her turn, or if she really believed that all of her siblings died of pneumonia. Would it be one of those horrid stories of where the child realizes what is happening, but they love their mother so much she trusts her through the very end? Ugh, my heart. But Rhonda has come this far. She is now a childless widow. Her mother, Mary Gibbons, comes to what I can only assume would be to console what should be a grieving daughter, only to be slowly and methodically killed by doctoring her coffee every morning with rat poison. In 1944, she is alone. How she is not caught then, I will never understand. From what I could find, she didn't move around a lot, so it would have been the same doctors, the same undertaker. I don't know. In 1947, she feels that she's ready for marriage again. Talmadge Gibson is the lucky man, 
No, really. He's the lucky man. The marriage only lasts for five months. No, she doesn't kill him. Like I said, he's lucky. He just doesn't know. I wonder what was going on through his mind when he heard about all of this nonsense on the news. She next met Claude Martin, a widower with three daughters and a son. He was husband number four. They were married in 1950. There is no evidence that she killed Claude's former wife, but once she killed Claude, she took $400 from her $2,000 life insurance payout to move his first bride's corpse to be buried next to her now-dead husband so they could be together. Uh, I'm not sure what to do with that. Claude died in 1951, in short, because she was dosing him daily with arsenic-laced coffee. Daily. Let, let me just take a moment here to give you a glimpse of what death by arsenic may look like. I probably should have done this earlier to help you better understand how truly horrid these crimes are, but maybe it was my initial plan not to say anything at all. But here we are, with me not being able to keep my mouth shut. Hang on, this might get a bit graphic. So, when someone is poisoned with arsenic, it's not just a quick one-and-done thing. It's not like they go to sleep and you can call it a day. Cash in on that life insurance policy tomorrow from 9 to 5. No, if you poison someone in small doses, such as adding it daily to their coffee or food on a regular basis, it compiles upon itself, inside the body. It may take a bit longer, but it is systematically shutting down the body. The longer you take to poison the victim, the more symptoms the body will reflect. To whereas, if you give them a huge helping where it activates within hours, it's more likely to be passed off as a stomach bug or food poisoning. Basically, it's eating away the stomach. The throat gets swollen, the extremities go numb, and your head feels like it's going to explode. The sheer pain of the cramping and convulsing in between violent bouts of vomiting, even when there is nothing for the stomach to come up, takes a coldness that I can't even wrap my head around. Profuse sweating, vomiting blood, bodies writhing in pain. Arsenic is not a pretty death. Arsenic is not for the faint of heart. And all of the women we talked about today insisted on being by their victim's side. So they had to watch this. They chose to watch. They chose to be a heartless witness as the body broke down and turned on itself, trying to rid the organs of the evil intruder. But once they've reached this point, there is no saving the shell of the body. By the time it has run its course, there is hardly anything left. Skin on bones. The skin actually, has already begun to separate from its host because there's nothing there to cling to. Horrible. Horrible, yes. Now, double that. No, triple that. You know what? Never mind. There's not a number high enough when you tack on that kind of suffering to a child. Now that we're all on the same page, where was I? Ah, yes. Husband number four dies a slow death, and at the moment, no one is the wiser. And just to keep this story interesting, Rhonda Bell decides that her next husband is going to be, wait for it, her stepson. Yep, her dead husband's son, who is 21 years her junior, still in the Navy, and thinks he has fallen in love. Did I mention that they get married only eight months after the passing of his father slash her husband? I wonder what his sisters were thinking. Ronald Martin, who is 25 at the time, becomes husband number five. After only a couple years of wedded bliss, Rhonda doesn't waste much more time before she is initiating the death of this new husband. Oh, also, it's interesting to note, According to Alabama law, the couple had entered into an unlawful, incestuous relationship. According to a law with lots of numbers and letters that was instated in 1947, you are not allowed to marry a stepchild. 
They believe that once you were married, the extension of that family, meaning the stepkids, etc., are still to be recognized as such, meaning your children, even after a spouse passes away. So, by law, Rhonda and Ronald were still considered mother and son. Gross. Rhonda opted to take the slow route in killing this husband and wasn't the least bit phased when he went to see the doctor for his unexplained stomach ailments. The doctors at the veterans hospital couldn't find a cause that's true, so they decided to dig a little deeper and order more tests. They tested some of Ronald's hair and specifically request a check for metals, and it came back positive for arsenic. The jig is up. So Ronald now knows that his wife is trying to kill him. Is this where it dawns on him exactly how his father died as well? The doctors decide to keep him in the hospital to treat him for arsenic poisoning and keep him safe while they report their findings to the police who started a super quiet investigation into Rhonda's past. They start exhuming bodies and testing each one for poison. They have enough evidence to bring her in. In 1955, Rhonda Bell Martin is arrested for the murder of her last husband, Claude C. Martin. After three days of questioning and being confronted with all the evidence, she finally confesses to it all. Ronald does survive the arsenic poisoning, but it had already done some massive damage and he was permanently paralyzed from the waist down. Rhonda Bell Martin went to trial hoping to claim insanity but the prosecution quashed that early on with a statement directed at the judge, quote, She served arsenic in coffee to her husband in order to collect some paltry amount of insurance and to get him out of the way so she could marry his son, end quote. She admits to having insurance policies on all six victims. Post-trial, the jury deliberated for three hours and ten minutes before returning a verdict of guilty. The prosecution requests the death sentence. Now, under Alabama's automatic appeal law, the conviction will go to the Supreme Court. The sentence is postponed until the appeal is decided. And her appeal states, quote, After laying a proper predicate, the state introduced in evidence the defendant's signed confession admitting that she had placed poison in her husband's coffee over a period of several months preceding and during his fatal illness. It is undisputed and clearly appears from the record that the confession was voluntary. End quote. During the court proceedings of the appeals, they actually got into a debate as to the legality and the morality of the marriage to the stepson. It does say that, according to Alabama law, that a marriage of such nature is considered incestuous, which we already talked about. And while that may be, small fish! And really has no bearing in the appeal. She attempted to kill that man, stepson or not, and his father is already dead. The defendant's lawyer attempted to use this argument to his advantage by saying, basically, and I'm totally paraphrasing, see, she's insane. But their final statement was, quote, We have carefully considered all of the testimony, even though no lawful objection or exception was made thereto, as is required of us, and do not find any testimony that was seriously prejudicial to the rights of the appellant, nor can we say, upon consideration of all the testimony, that the verdict is so decidedly contrary to the great weight of the evidence as to be wrong and unjust, which would call for an order reversing the judgment and granting a new trial. End quote. She was sentenced to death for the murder of her fourth husband, Claude C. Martin. She had made herself a nice dress, black and white, to go to her hearing. Despite her efforts at an insanity plea on October 11, 1957, she walked toward the death chamber wearing her new dress and a wedding ring. Eight days before her fateful day, she was asked in an interview if she was prepared to die. She responds, quote, Well, you've never seen anybody who was ready to sit down in the electric chair, but if that's what it's got to be, that's what it will be, end quote. 
Side note, on October 11th, 1957, Rhonda followed all the steps to follow through with her execution. Last meal, last rites, last words, which she had none. The warden gave the signal, and the switch was thrown. Rhonda tensed her body, preparing for the worst, but nothing happened. The staff was called in and discovered that leads from the power source to the chair had been disconnected. Everything was plugged back in, the warden called for the switch, and the execution was carried out. Rhonda Bell Martin was the last woman to be executed in the state of Alabama until 2002. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Bag of Bones. If you like what you're hearing, could you please do me the favor of liking and reviewing the podcast on Apple or wherever you listen? Don't forget to subscribe, and if you need a Bag of Bones fix between episodes, you can always find me on Facebook or Instagram. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next time. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.